You are listening to The Beckett Cook Show with your host, Beckett Cook. For more information about Beckett and his ministry, visit his website at beckettcook.com. To help support the podcast, visit patreon.com slash the Beckett Cook Show. Please consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving a five-star rating. Hey guys, welcome to the Beckett Cook Show. Today I have a very, very special guest. He is a best-selling, a New York Times best-selling author. And I'm actually, I happen to have a few of his books in my bookcase, which I've read. And Martin Luther, of course, his book on miracles. And no one can forget Bonhoeffer, which was basically required reading, especially after uh, he gave a speech at the National Prayer Breakfast in 2012. He's also the host of the Eric Metaxas Show and Socrates in the City. Welcome, Eric Metaxas. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I'm so glad you're on my show. And I got to tell you, we're going to talk about today, we're going to talk about his new book, which is a memoir called Fish Out of Water, A Search for the Meaning of Life. This is, of course, the advanced reader copy that's the advanced reader's copy i'm sorry you don't have the the actual copy can you show uh, the actual copy so they can see what how glamorous it looks and you you know what before before we uh do i have one here well you have several behind you oh behind me do you want me to do you want me to get that no no it's okay Uh, i can't reach (laughs) i can't reach um no it's well, forget it. It's your show. Yeah, you ask me whatever you want to ask me, but it's great to be here. I'm, I'm really, I was really looking forward to this. Uh, it's fun for me to talk. Good. To you. I'm glad. And so, obviously, I know you've gotten this question many times. So, why fish out of water? You mean why the title? Why the title? Nah, I don't know. Um, <laughs> um, we can get into that because I have the, questions about that. Yeah. Well, no. The 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 title is. Uh, it actually, it, it's kind of an amazing thing. Uh, at the end of the book, I talk about this super freaky, life-changing Jesus dream, which was not a dream. It was God spoke to me in the context of a dream and totally blew my mind and changed my life. And in the dream, it's like a fairy tale involving a golden fish. It's amazing powerful, beautiful thing that happened. And so I'd always intended to call the book, The Golden Fish. And literally 20 years ago, when I was, I can't believe I just said that, how sick, but it's true. Uh, I was writing this book. I spent the summer of like 2001 thinking, okay, I got to write this book. And so a friend of mine who, uh, Jill Lamar, she worked for Barnes and Noble, whatever. And we were hanging out that summer and she said, oh, you should name it Fish Out of Water, call it Fish Out of Water. And I thought, son of a gun, she's right. Like, you know, a lot of people have yeah. ideas and they're bad ideas. That was a brilliant, I said, that's it. You're right. Because I'm a fish out of water Yes. in my life in many ways, and especially leading up to this moment. And then at the end of the dream, Jesus is the fish out of water. And the way it kind of comes together is truly nuts. It's amazing. Even the theology fits. And so I thought that's the title. So my sweet friend, Jill Lamar, uh, she's really the person who gets credit for giving me the idea. But so all these years, I have known that when I finally write this book, it'll be fish out of water. 
Yeah, it's the perfect title. It's a great title. And actually, when I first received the book, I was like, wow, that is the exact right title for, for this story. And you're, you know, you're, you're famous for writing biographies and, you know, William Wilberforce, Martin Luther, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was, and obviously the research for those books is intensive, but was this book, I mean, you said you started in 2001, I mean, how freaky, but I started, I wrote it, I wrote like 100,000 words in 2001 and then did nothing with it. I never do nothing with my writing, but that was just a weird case. And eventually I knew I'd have to go back. And so I used some of what I wrote back then, but mostly it's, you know, I, I just knew I wanted to tell the stories of my life. There are all these stories and some of them are funny. A lot of them are insane, funny, nuts, you know, and some of them are moving. And so I just had all these stories I wanted to tell. I didn't think that it would be as, um, what's the word I'm looking for, uh, you know, as complete. Like, I just thought it'll be a memoir. But but I ended up really wanting to recreate everything and to tell all these stories. I mean, I had to leave some out because it's so long. I mean, it ends up not being that long, but it would have been really long. And you know, you do think like, why are people want to read every detail of my life? But it's almost like when I was writing the biographies of these other figures, there is something really extraordinary, at least to me, to be able to kind of go back in time and recreate the past. It's like it comes back to life and the more detail you can give it. So that was kind of fun for me to, to, you know, to just tell these stories, but then at certain points think, well, wait a minute, what about that? And where was that? And uh, because of the internet, it's easy to do research sometimes, you know, you can just have a question and you can answer it quickly. Uh, and so I just wanted to tell the whole story and to get every detail right. But a lot of it uh, entailed phone calls to my parents. They must've thought I was nuts. Like I called them three <laughs> times a day, like, wait, I remember when this happened, what, 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 what you know, so, but if it, it, it really felt like I wanted it to be complete. I wanted to put in as much as I possibly could to give the reader context. And uh, I think the context, you know, it's like telling a joke. If you tell the joke well, the punchline hits hardest. Yeah. Uh, and if you don't tell it well, you kind of, you kind of step on the punchline. And I thought I need to get all this stuff right so that when we get to the end, the reader is tracking with me. And uh, so I, I, I just never meant it to, to, I never meant to tell so much, but it, it kind of uh, took on a life of its own. It was, it's a very strange experience writing about your, your youth, uh, your yeah. childhood. It was, and it was, you go into, it, it, you go into great detail about it. And, the, and it's a page, I mean, it, literally for me, it was a page turner and, you know, I laughed, I cried. It was better than cats. And um, it, it's, was it for you? Was it was it cathartic? But was for it? You? But was it better than Torch Song trilogy? No, of course not. Uh, Harvey yeah, of course not. Uh, Harvey Firestein uh, uh, is yeah. better. Um, and so, was it a cathartic experience for you when you finished it? Was it like uh, like you could? Well, no, you never it, you never finish it. Like you hand it in, but you ever finish right. it? No, yeah. uh, I I I would love to you know add another hundred pages and do this and do that whatever, but. It was, I mean, yeah, it was, it was not exactly cathartic because I think you don't ever have enough time to really finish it. And what does that even mean? When is it finished? Who determines when it's finished? You know, that's always in play. 
Um, but the editors at Salem uh, who published it, they were fantastic. And I, um, oh, you know, it was, it's weird. I originally sold the idea to Viking, which is a mainstream, you know, they published my yeah. Luther book, they published other books, but they rejected the book because they were looking for like a more Christian book. They wanted a book more about the Christian experience. And I thought, no, this is a literary memoir that ends up with this kind of Christian ending, but I wasn't looking for Jesus. I didn't know what I was looking for. I was stumbling through life as we do making mistakes and what, you know, just not, it wasn't like I was some, some like hunt for God. I, yeah. I didn't know what I was looking for. I didn't know if God existed much less be able to be, you know, hunted by me. I didn't have a clue. And so I, I really kind of stuck to my guns. I said, no, I said, I want this to be a literary memoir that people who would not read like a faith memoir would read. I wanted this to be literary, specifically a literary telling. And I'm, I'm glad that it is, but I had to, to switch publishers because, you know, they had a very clear idea of, of the book they were looking for. And I get that, but I, I couldn't write that book. I mean, even if I wanted to, I, I don't think I could have written it. Yeah. And your writing style in the book is, is hilarious. I mean, it reminded me of Nabokov and Lolita or, or Voltaire and, um, and what, Candide. It was why that, am I even here? If you're saying these nice things, I can only I can only ruin this. It's I'm so, so listen, Beckett. Seriously, it means a lot to me that it's you hilarious. It. Thank you. It's I wanna, so I, good. I need, I need that blurb. Okay. Thank you. It's so good. Yeah. And then, of course, the climax of the book is brilliant. And and I mean, I recommend. I urge everyone to go out. Well, actually, just go to your computer and buy it right now. But I just want to talk to you a little bit about your past. So you. We're born in Astoria, Queens. You yeah. moved, I think, uh, when you were two to Danbury, Connecticut. No, no, no. I, I was um, uh, I, I was born in Queens. We moved to Jackson Heights, which is another part of Queens. Oh, right. And I went to the Greek Orthodox parochial school in Corona, Queens. Um, so totally immersed in that world. And, you know, immersed in the world of, you know, so many New Yorkers have that immigrant background. And so all of our friends are Greek and, you know, and a few German friends, uh, my mother's friends. But it was only when I was just before I was nine that we moved to the country, to Danbury, right. Connecticut. And that was like a dream, like, oh, my gosh, the country, yeah. we're going to the country. And so, yeah, we got a house in, in Danbury, Connecticut. And that's where I grew up. And that's middle America. I mean, it's absolutely yeah. smack dab in the middle of the country in terms of everything about it, uh, it, it just was a very normal working class, middle class upbringing uh, in, you know, uh, an American town. So, yeah. yeah and you say, yeah. you say you grew up, you know, in the Greek Orthodox Church and you, you mentioned in the book that you never, you and your family, I guess, never really took God seriously, but you weren't atheists. So. Well, right. It's, it but I think a lot thing. of people are like that. Like, I think yeah. a lot of people. I mean, you, the classic example is Catholics, right? Like, you know, we go to church, we go to church. What do you really believe? I don't know. You right. know, do you believe sex outside of marriage is okay? Well, I don't, I don't know. Like, I know we're not supposed to, but like nobody really knows w what they make of it unless you're very serious. Right. But a lot of people aren't. It's a cultural thing. So you kind of know I'm supposed to be a good person, supposed to study hard, get a good job, you know, like that's not different from what anybody knows. But I think a lot of times the the experience that people have in church is cultural and not what it ought to be. 
and that's the experience growing up in the Greek community. It's a wonderful community, and I love these people. But we went through all these different priests, and if you read the book, I mean, that alone is insane, the whole crazy <laughs> priest story and whatever. Yeah. And so I think people will find it entertaining, and I'm thrilled you found it hilarious. But it is hilarious, and it's tragic at the same time. And it, But when I went to college, which is Yale University, you know, the dream of the working class immigrants to, to go to send their son to Yale University. But then I quickly bumped into the world of the cultural elites. Like they don't really take God seriously at all. And did I have the faith or the, the sense of what I believe to go into that environment and say, well, this is what I believe. No, I didn't know what I believed. I was, you know, my finger was in the wind. Like what, you know, what, what do my friends think? And what are, you know, and so I really, that's when you realize do you believe when you're surrounded by people who don't believe it or are hostile to it? And that's when I, you know, sort of lost my way. And it wasn't like I became some big sinner, but I just didn't know what I believed. And so I drifted. uh, And I, it wasn't until, you know, I was about 24. I moved back in with my parents. That's my standard joke. You know, if you, if you graduate college with an English degree and you're going to float and and flounder around, you're, you will move back in with your parents. It's like a Euclidean theorem. You, you must do that. (laughs) And I did. And if your parents are European immigrants, uh, working class European immigrants, they're going to eat you alive. Like, what do you mean you're here and you don't know what you're doing? Like, we worked hard jobs so that you could go to Yale and you're you're back here and you're lost. And, you know, and my my college friends, you know, their parents would be like, oh, Eric's finding himself. He wants to be a writer. And my parents would be like, you should find yourself a job and get out. So it was kind of a it was kind of a harsh time, but it was yeah. in the pain of that year that God was able to kind of track me down. And I'm very grateful that's putting in. We, yes, we're all grateful for that. And there was a, there was a turning point. Well, there was many turning points, but the first kind of, I think the first turning point for you was a Russian Orthodox priest who was teaching at a a youth Christian youth camp. Yeah. The whole thing's funny. I mean, first of all, the book is nothing but turning points. Yeah. 100%. Um, but I, I mean, this is, I always joke around and I know I say all this in the book, but the Greek community is funny because Greeks are really proud to be Greek as they should be, but it becomes comical because they don't, you know, to them, a lot of them, Greek is being Greek is their hobby and their religion. Like it's, it's, they're all in. And so the Greeks never venture outside of the Greek community. So the fact that the youth group in the church was sent for a Saturday like afternoon or whatever it was to a Russian Orthodox church in Danbury, Connecticut, which is by the college there. I thought, what's going on? Like Greeks don't let, they're not going to trust us with the Russians. Like that's not going to (laughs) happen, but they did. I don't know how that happened. And the, and the Russian Orthodox priest was an American who clearly had, you know, he was born again. He believed in this stuff. So he has these 11, 12, 13 year olds. And he talks to us about Jesus and what happened on the cross and his sacrifice for us and his love for us. We'd never heard this. Like we'd heard it sort of, but never really heard it. And he told us to, to, to pray and to thank Jesus for what he did and whatever. And we were all like, yeah, we, we get it. I mean, we, we, we're not going to argue. We believe this stuff. We just never got it delivered to us clearly. And it was very moving for me. It was very real. And then two kids, I'm still friends with them. Uh, We're not kids anymore. But I remember they both, this is no joke, 
independently had visions of Jesus while we were doing this prayer time. Wow. And these are not guys to blow smoke. And I, they literally don't remember this today. This is like 40 something, five years later. But I remember distinctly one of them saying like, I got to tell you what happened. Like, listen, I was, when we were doing this prayer thing, like, a, you know, this man in white, and it was Jesus. And, da, 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 da. and that was my buddy, Dino Kalitsas. And my other buddy, uh, Adam Forchiotta said, the same thing happened to me. And he starts talking to me. And I, I remember standing there thinking, I don't know why it didn't happen to me, but I know they're not lying. Like this is, you know, this happened. And so from that point on, I had kind of like a private faith because there was zero discipleship or follow-up in the Greek right. church, zero. <clears throat> so I, on my own at night would pray the Lord's prayer or something, but I hardly knew what I was doing. I had nobody to guide me. So by the time I end up going to Yale, I'm lost. And although before that, when I was in high school, there was a charismatic Catholic community, kind of like the Jesus people thing. And a friend of mine was involved in that. And so I kind of would hang out with them now and again. So I always knew there's something here. I just didn't know exactly what to do about it. We had, it's interesting because we have such kind of parallel stories because my parents were Catholics and they, in the seventies, they were part of the Catholic charismatic movement. And we went literally to the community and it was called the Christian community of God's delight in Dallas, Texas. And, and it's interesting because during that period, I could see that these people were for real. Like they, what, I, that they were really believing what they were. That's you know. exactly what my feeling was. And the name of the community in Danbury, Connecticut was the community. Yeah. Which I think I put in my book. Yeah. And it was ecumenical, which is what the, what the, that whole movement was. It was the Jesus people. So, you know, Catholic charismatics, evangelical charismatic, whatever it was. And it was so beautiful. And I remember being there, you know, I was 15 uh, and 16. And I said, I know this is real. Like these people, this is real. This is good stuff. But because I was part of the Greek church, I was like, well, you know, I got my own thing so I can visit this, but I'm not going to, you know, I don't want to freak out, make my dad angry. Right. So I didn't, you know, um, I, I just didn't know what to do about it, but I knew Jesus was important, but I, I, I kind of slowly drifted. I didn't drift quickly, slowly. It was just this real, you know, sliding away by the time I graduated. And after I had just forgot, you know, anything, I didn't know what I believed. But then you talk about, um, I think when you were a 16 years, no, you were a senior in high school, you, you went into your parents' bedroom and found a New Testament and you started reading that. What, what compelled you to do that? Yeah, well, that's, you know, nothing compelled me. It was just like, huh, what's this? Because we didn't read the Bible, you know, like Greek Orthodox people, Catholics, you know, they tend not to read. They just, they go to yeah. church and, you know, but I find this. New Testament, it was the, it's good news for modern man, which I guess was popular like in the, in the seventies. And it was very, you know, it was a translation that was extremely um, user-friendly and it had these little spot illustrations and I was reading it and it just kind of got to me. Like, I, I don't remember what I was thinking, except that, Hey, like, this is interesting. What is this? What is this? And I was just reading it, reading it. And I remember one day, reading it and this is when I was kind of going to the community now and again so I was open to this stuff and I remember reading the 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 New Testament and one day it just got to me to the point where I thought I need to do something about this like I need to give myself to God in a new way 
And I remember, and again, this is in the book, I told my buddy, John Tamanio, my best friend, and I said, you know, I tried to explain this to him and they, they never went to church, but he said to me, well, gee, Eric, I don't, you know, that doesn't sound like you, like you're sarcastic and jokey and, you know, that's going to make you like really pious and like, it doesn't sound right, you know? And I remember thinking, well, um, yeah, I don't know. And, you know, then the day passes and the next day passes and I drift away, but it was like this moment that I felt something, but I didn't know what to do about it. I didn't know where to go. But what's interesting is you you talk about this in the book. You gave your graduation speech, your high school graduation speech, and you weren't for some reason your school didn't have the valedictorian do it. It was like the salutatorian or just Eric Metaxas. Well, no, they had, they had a thing where I mean I was always like one of the best students in the in the class, but because I took all honors classes, my grade point average was not the best, right? Like right. you know if you're taking calculus or whatever, but um, they didn't pick the speaker that way they pick the speaker that you'd have to like write a speech and give the speech and they would pick the best speeches and I won unanimously I'd never written a speech before but I had this kind of burning desire like I'm I gotta write that I gotta be the speaker yeah and I was chosen to be the speaker and I did quote the New Testament in my speech and again this is like a 16 year old trying to make sense of life, not really knowing exactly what he believes, think, sort of thinking he's a Christian or whatever. And, but clearly, whatever I was at that moment, once I got to college, I just started to, to drift. And it, you know, it took time, but there was definitely something going on, which is why when I say that I had this conversion experience at age 25, you know, it's true, but it's also not true in the sense that what was I before? What was going on? I don't know. All I know is that I was not all in until the end of this book where I had this insane dream. And that was like, my life was changed. Yeah. Well, what's interesting about the graduation speech is I think you wrote trust Jesus on the top of the speech. Yeah. 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 What was that about? I had a kind of basic faith. The only thing is I knew so little that I just didn't know what to do with it. You know, it's, it's, that's what's so amazing to me is when you look at, and this is why everybody's story is different. You know, we try to put everybody in boxes. It's like the standard thing that you, and you realize, well, I I was somebody who kind of wanted to believe and sort of believe, but I didn't know much about the faith and I was not hanging out with people who knew about the faith. So eventually I just drifted away and kind of forgot about it and kind of thought, well, maybe I don't know what I believe now. That's bizarre, but that's what happened to me. And you say when you got to Yale, you basically were, it was like this kind of, this uh, environment, this atmosphere where you were encouraged to, to embrace the meaninglessness of life. Well, exactly. And it wasn't, it's it's not like it was overt, but you know, all my friends were kind of like left wing, uh, you know, literary artsy people. And I really didn't know who I was. And so I just thought, well, whatever they think, you know, in other words, your values drift, you want to impress your friends or whatever it was. And and I was, uh, I remember I did go to the Christian group on campus, like uh, my first couple of semesters, I was at Trinity College in Hartford, and then I transferred. But I went to the Christian group on campus, they had like a Friday night thing, and I would go. And I'm amazed that I did that. But I, I would go, and I would not do anything about it. Like I would go, and I didn't make friends with anybody. I would, it was just like this thing. So when I went to Yale, I went to a couple of these meetings, and then at some point decided, I'm done. Like, I'm going to hang with with the cool people. I'm not going to do that weird Christian thing anymore. But I remember making a decision like, that's it. 
And it's like I turned my back on the God people consciously. Yeah, it would have been social suicide. It would have been social suicide for you at Yale to Well, that's that's kind of the point. Like <clears throat> I didn't know how do you how do you do this? And I think a lot of people live there. Like they're not, I don't know if I want to commit. I don't want to be ostracized or whatever the heck it is. So. But during this time, I think you you talk about in the book that you had the sort of Jungian, Freudian kind of understanding of reality and like you know, reality was this, like this ice. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well that that's see, but that's what's so funny, Becca, because I was I was trying to figure it all out, right? And so I thought, well, this Christianity thing is not a hoax. It's not, but but probably all religions are about the same. And you know, maybe what people are really talking about when they're talking about religion, it, it can all be summed up in one, you know, way that makes sense for everybody. And I, you know, had just enough. Freud and Jung in some class, probably with Harold Bloom or something like mm-hmm. that, where I kind of got this idea like, oh yeah, so the so so when when Jung talks about the collective unconscious, the kind of this divinity, um, that's all that God is. And all people are talking about is kind of, you know, going from your conscious mind to this collective unconscious, kind of touching this otherness or whatever. And there's just enough truth there to kind of fool you into like sounding like, well, that makes sense. Well, what makes sense? What the heck is the collective unconscious? It's a meaningless, stupid thing. It, there is no collective unconscious. It's garbage. And what it d- does though, it just sounds enough like God that you go, Oh, okay. It's divinity, you know, and it, it's not Jesus. That's not the God of the Bible. That's it's like this kind of new age energy force. But I kind of came up with this idea that the, the goal of life is like, you know, the, 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 like the conscious mind is like a frozen lake is like the ice and the collective unconscious is the water beneath the ice. And that the goal of life is to drill through the conscious mind to touch the water, to have some kind of a, you know, um, access to that collective unconscious. And so on some level, there's a truth there, right? What are you accessing? You're accessing inert water. You're, you're, you're touching what, who cares? What is that? God is a person. And so later on, when I had this epiphany dream right around my 25th birthday, God used that imagery to one up me and to blow my stinking mind. And uh, it really is, you know, that's, that's what's so crazy is that God made sense of all this looniness for me and, you know, just spun me around and changed everything. Yeah, you see, when you read your whole story, you see how God was kind of in these moments throughout your entire life. There was this just, he was like, it, or he was it's humbling you. It's you know, really, it's really humbling and crazy. I mean, it really is just, that's why I thought I've got to write this whole story so that it makes sense for the reader so that they're tracking along, you know, Yeah. Um, and see what they make of it. And I, I really mean it when I say that I wrote this book for people that are not on the same page as I am, whether politically or theologically. I mean, I wrote this book for literary readers, people who read books and like stories. I wrote this book for them. It's not a spiritual memoir. It's a literary memoir um, because I want people, everybody to know that this is, this is my journey. And I think it will help you. I really do wherever you are. I, that's, I believe that, but you know, I, I, I uh, I wanted it to be literary and funny and crazy and, and just tell all these stories and hoping it would add up to something. That's the theory. Yes. And there you had a major turning point when 
after you had traveled around Europe, you ended up moving back home. And yeah, as you said, and you started where instead of I think of the graduate, I think of Dustin Hoffman and the graduate and kind of floundering, not knowing what he's supposed to do. And totally. instead of going into plastics, you went into proofreading at Union Carbide. Horrible. Horrible. And that's where you met Ed Tuttle. Yeah. No, it, it's the whole thing is like it, it's like a bad dream in many ways. I mean, <laughs> I moved back in with my parents. I'm 24. I, you know, I graduated. I skipped the grade. So I graduated early. So I'm young, but I've been out of college now, you know, three and a half years, whatever it was. And I, I just didn't know what the heck I was doing. And I moved back in with my parents. And of course, I got to get some kind of a job. And what kind of a job can you do if you got an English degree from Yale and your parents are working class European immigrants? It's not like they're going to, you know, hook you up with some great job with some friend of theirs or something. So I, what can I do? I've done proofreading. That's all I'd ever done. What, you know, during one summer that I was working at, uh, uh, in a crazy in magazine college, in, in the summer. Yes. I was, and I got this job at a law firm proofreading and, you know, I thought I can do that. And they, they paid fairly well com- considering. So I got a job. There was a, 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 you know, an advertisement in the newspaper that union carbide, the chemical international conglomerate <laughs> needs a proofreader. And it was like a nightmare going to a corporate environment, horrible corporate environment and proofreading the most dull, I mean, it was awful in this fluorescent corporate environment, horrible. But this is what I was doing while I'm trying to write on the side, which of course I wasn't writing anything on the side. I was floundering. And, uh, but in that hell, uh, God, you know, sent a graphic designer into my life named Ed Tuttle, who started sharing his faith with me. And he went to an Episcopal church, but it was like a charismatic Episcopal, you know, he was like a born again Episcopalian. There are not too many of those left, but I, we would have conversations and I was always kind of keeping him at arm's length. I was not exactly being like, Hey, tell me about God. I was, you know, like skeptical and slightly hostile, but I was in enough pain that I was willing to, you know, continue the conversation sort of. And that went on for many months where I was, you know, just here, there, whatever. And he was praying for me. And that all led to the, the ending where God just, you know, punched a hole in the sheetrock and said, I'm, I'm, I'm out here if you're interested. Yeah. And you had, you had, I think during that time you had this miraculous, well, it was during the time you, you were at Union Carbide. You had this miraculous kind of thing where about heaven knows, can you tell that story? Oh yeah. Yeah. This is, but this is just like the other stories I'm telling like you have these things that happen and it's amazing. And then it just drifts away and you blow it off. Like what, what is going on? Yeah. I was, I remember that in my misery, I mean, I was miserable, depressed, and really just going through a tough time. I, you know, I'm driving on the highway to this horrible job and listening to like AM radio, or actually this was FM radio. And it was this local station that plays, you know, like rock classics or whatever the heck it was. And um, the, uh, there was a song that was, it was Robert Plant, right? You know, Led, Led Zeppelin. And he had some some hit. It was like it was it was a hit. Uh, and but it was called Heaven Knows. And I remember thinking, I remember wondering in my you know emotional you know musings, like I, I wonder if Heaven knows. I wonder if, if God knows that I'm here. I wonder if you know, like just kind of wondering, mm-hmm. is God real? Is He aware of me? And so one day, the song was playing as I'm pulling into the parking lot, this underground parking garage at Union Carbide at the beginning of the day. 
And I pull into the parking space and I turn off the radio as it's playing this song. I let it finish and I turn it off and I say, okay, God, if you're real, this song will be on when I, you know, turn, turn the car on, you know, in eight and a half hours or whatever it was. Um, so I go and get on with my work. And of course I forget all about this. It's not like, you know, I'm, I'm, I've always been that way. Like I, I forget stuff and my brain is all over the place. So I forget all about it. And sure enough, eight and a half hours later, I get in the car and I turn it on. I turn the car on and bing, here's the song. And I thought, oh my gosh, it really freaked me out. And I thought, God is real. Like God is real. Like this is nuts. And I was so full of joy. And I drove home and I forgot all about it. It's almost like I thought, okay, but what? Now what? And, you know, two months later, I was still searching for the meaning of life. Like that, that didn't settle things for me, even though it kind of blew my mind at the moment. It was not enough for me to take some step. But in the book, you say you'd say that you there was this moment you went from unbelief to belief. And it was when your friend Ed, your your uncle, had yes. a stroke and he got he was in a coma. And yes. Ed said he was going to pray for him. And have his friends pray for him. And, and it yeah. really, that blew your mind. Yes. That, yeah, that was a few months later. My uncle, it was a really horrible thing. My um, my cousin uh, was getting married. And like the day before, my mother calls me and says that your uncle had a stroke. He's in the hospital. I thought, what? Like, the, the wedding is tomorrow. And what, what? so it was this like really sad wedding because everybody's there except my uncle, uh, whose son, whose only son this was, and it was really a strange thing. And so I remember telling my friend Ed about my uncle and this whole thing. And he had people in his church praying for my uncle. And I was just so moved. I thought, really? Like strangers are praying for my uncle. And then one day, like maybe the next day, or he, he says, would you like, we can get together and we, let's pray for your uncle. And I was like, yeah. So we go into this conference room and we sit down and he starts praying. And I'd never done this before, right? Where, you know, you close your eyes and he's praying. And, and I thought, okay. And while he's praying, something happened. It wasn't really a mystical experience, but it was close to it. Like, I just felt like this is real. Like God is listening right now. Like this is, you know, the way I put it is it's like a window opened and a breeze of heaven came through and you just knew this is real. And when I opened my eyes at the end of the prayer, I was like, that was interesting. That was something happened there. And because my uncle's life was at stake, it kind of invested me in, okay, I'm going to pray for my uncle. And so that week I was praying, my uncle died, but I didn't get angry at God or whatever. I, I just assumed that, you know, God's ways are not our ways, but I suddenly something happened to me where I was willing to believe. And at the funeral, I remember somehow it was real to me. It had meaning for me that something was happening. And it was some days after that, that I had this dream and that was game over that, that was, you know, that was the killer. That was that, that it was over after that. And then of course uh, the climax of the book is, is your dream about the golden fish. And we won't get into that because it's such a beautiful story. And I want people to get the book and read it. But you said 
in the book after your conversion, which is, I love this line. It was like, you say it was like going to sleep single and waking up married. Yeah. I've said that a lot of times and it always gets a good laugh. And I think, well, that, I don't know where I came up with that, but that's exactly what it was. I mean, I couldn't have dreamt going to sleep that this could happen. I didn't know it was possible to know God, like really. And it happens to me in this dream and I wake up and it's like, that's it. I know there's no going back. I know it's real. He's real. Jesus is real. And the Bible's true. And now the rest of my life is figuring that out and trying to walk in that. But it was just like, boom, settled. Yeah. So I can't say exactly what happened, except that I do know that the Holy Spirit spoke to me in a dream and it changed me forever. And uh, I'm the kind of person that kind of needed that, I think, because I am so all over the place. And so that was like, boom. And it really did. It just changed everything. And and the dream is so beautiful that I realized this, this is God. Like, nobody could invent this. This is the most beautiful, you know, it was, it was, it was God speaking to me, like in what I call the secret, the secret vocabulary of my heart that it wouldn't have made sense to anybody, but it made perfect sense to me because I knew the details. And if you read the book, you'll know the details when you get to that point. But the, the idea is that God wants to speak to everybody in that way that we need to know that he know he knows us better than we know ourselves infinitely better. And that's what I took away from that dream. I felt like, Oh my goodness, only God could, could speak that way. He knows me better than I know myself. And he, he, he knows what I need and he knows how to talk to me and he loves me. I mean, everybody needs to hear that because it's true. Um, and so, yeah. So I thought, you know, I'll, I'll end the book there and I'll, I'll write another book that kind of takes from that point on, which is all these miracles and all, you know, that's kind of the, yeah what happened to me after, which is, uh, I, I also think very interesting, but this is, I just wanted this to be a, a memoir of my early years and how I got to that point. Yeah. So what, just a, one, two more questions. What, when you're, what did your friends from Yale think about you when you told them you were a Christian now? What, what was their reaction? I, I, you know, it was not good. <laughs> it was not, let me, let me put it this way. It was not good. Yeah. They, they just think like, okay, you've lost it. You know, you're, you're nuts. And, and, and now you must be some right wing, like jerk fascist. And uh, that's how simplistic, you know, the world is in which we live, where that's how people think they think, well, what, what's your view on this issue? What's your view on that issue? So, and, you know, so like you, like you think of, like being gay is bad. Like, what do you think? And it's like, no, it's worse than that. I think that any sex outside of marriage, any is not God's will. So it's like, we're all messed up sexually in every way. And so it's, you know, this is not some political decision I've made. This is about giving my life over to God. And it's, it's a challenging thing because people are going to look at you like, well, you know, but you have to say like, even though I care what people think of me, if I know God, we're talking God who invented these people and who makes the electrons in the atoms in their body go around the nuclei, that's kind of a big deal. And I have to worry about what he wants for me. And if I care about my friends, that's what I will worry about. I won't worry about whether they like it or not. And when I was really twisting in the wind and in my misery, none of these friends had any advice for me or any, you know, the, the, they didn't really believe that life had any particular meaning or that, you know, the, 
the brightest people just don't think about that, you know? And I, so I, I really was not able to care too much. I mean, I tried to be friends with them. And to this day, uh, if they're willing to be my friend, I want to be their friend. And in fact, I dedicated the book to Cheris Khan, this friend of mine who was, uh, she didn't go to Yale, but she was just a brilliant literary character, very politically liberal, very, you know, Brooklyn uh, was a, an editor of Harper's Magazine for 20 years. Uh, and she was totally brilliant. She remained my friend. And there were very few people that that just were still interested in me as a person and stuff. And we'd kind of hang out and whatever. And just a few years ago, mind blowingly, she came to faith in Jesus. And wow. I, I cannot tell you how that blew my mind. I thought that's stunning. And two years after that, she died of a uh, very rare blood disease, which was, is insane. But I just thought after I wrote the book, my wife, Suzanne was, you know, who did you write this book for? And I thought, I don't know, like it's such a strange melange of stories and crazy stuff. And it, but then eventually one day I just thought I know exactly who I wrote it for. I wrote it for Cheris. Like there's no doubt that wow. I got to dedicate this book to her. So I dedicate it to my parents and to her because she, she is the kind of person I'm hoping to reach with this book, a, a bright reader who is open-minded and uh, looking for truth, you know, suspicious of people who have found truth, but nonetheless willing to listen. And I was, uh, there's no doubt uh, in the end, I just thought, this book is totally for her. So, and for people like her who uh, they're, they're not going to read a Christian book, but they may read a literary memoir. So, and your parents ended up coming to Christ, right? Is that true? Uh, yeah. I mean, my, my, my parents, you know, it's a weird thing because at first my dad was really hostile. It's like, what, what do you mean you've become a Christian? Like, what do you think we were doing every Sunday? Where were we taking you to a mosque or to what, what do you think? And I, I think that, it's a classic case of, you know, it's the mis this misunderstanding and it took years for him to see my life. And it was probably about maybe 10 years ago uh, or a little more, but that something happened in my dad's life. You could just see that he got it and nothing, you know, could bless me more. And, uh, you know, he's not, it's not like he's reading the Bible or he's going to some evangelical church, but he gets it. And he has that basic faith. And my grandmother had that too. She didn't go to church, but she knew Jesus. It was a crazy thing. And I think that, you know, that, that, that people need to understand that, um, it's not about church attendance. It's not about, you know, can you fill out this form and tell me all the details of theologically, it's, it's about a personal relationship with God and um, my dad, you know, has that. And I think my mother does. And it's just kind of, it's, but it's literally taken, you know, three decades of loving them and, and, and whatever. So I, I, uh, I'm very happy that I get to say something like that because, yeah. you know, it wasn't always thus. And it wasn't always us. Well, let's leave it there. Cause I, I really, guys, I recommend you get this book, Fish Out of Water, it's amazing. And I, it's not only for it, it's edifying, I think to, it'll be very edifying to Christians and believers. But as you were saying, Eric, it will be, I think it will be very fascinating for a non-believer to see the r minute details of how someone goes from unbelief to belief.
because it's it's really you do a really great job. Well, it thrills me that you think that Beckett seriously. I, I because I do think that it is in all those details. They sort of pile up and uh, it it amounts to something. And I do I I really do think that people who believe the way I do will enjoy it. But I really do think that I I wanted to write a book that you could give to people who are not where we are and that they would actually enjoy reading it and that it would help them because I feel like there aren't a lot of books like that. And I, I really thought that I need to do that. I need to do that for people like my friend Cheris, who, wh- where is she going to, what is she supposed to read? What is she, you know, like, I think that there's been a dearth of that kind of stuff. I try to do that in my biographies to some extent too, that you don't have to be Christian to read it. Um, so I do hope that it finds its way into the hands of people who are just, you know, a little bit open. That's, that's all I would ask. Yes. So guys go to where Amazon, Barnes and Noble, wherever book, fine books are sold and get this book. And Eric, I just, I love your boldness. I love what, what all the things that you do. And I love your, your zeal for the Lord. I love just how evangelistic you are. So keep doing what you're doing. And thank you so much for being on my show. Well, if you like what I'm doing, I'm extra happy because I love you, Beckett. I love what you're doing. And so thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Beckett Cook Show. Your support makes this content possible. All episodes of The Beckett Cook Show are also available on YouTube. For more information about Beckett and his ministry, visit his website at beckettcook.com. tired of parenting advice and news headlines that are more confusing than assembling Ikea furniture, we've got just the podcast for you. My dear friend, Abby, and I are here to help you navigate the parenting roller coaster. Should your kids be on social media? What should you tell a friend facing an unplanned pregnancy? These are just some of the many questions we tackle on our podcast. Subscribe to The Real Deal of Parenting wherever you find your podcast.